Let's pray. Father, we, the truth is we need you. We need your presence, Lord. We need your presence here, and we need your presence in our lives, Lord. We come before you uh, with nothing to offer but our brokenness. So, Father, as we encounter your word now, we pray that your spirit would come and would speak to our hearts in a way that changes us, Father. And we pray that the, the words of my and our mouths and the meditations of my and our hearts as we gather for worship would be pleasing in your sight. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, From time to time, I've had uh, many people come up to me and say, uh, so I hear you're a runner. And uh, very often I'll say, well, yeah, I'm a runner and I've coached and and I've been running for a long time. And and then we'll chat about running for a while and we'll have a nice little conversation. But sometimes during the winter months, somebody will come up to me and they'll say that very thing. They'll say, so I hear you're a runner. And I always feel a little weird during the winter months about saying I'm a runner. Because the truth is, in the winter months, the days get a little shorter. Uh, it's, it's darker earlier. Uh, it's colder outside. The, uh, the, the conditions outside are a little more icy and a little more uncomfortable to run in. And, uh, you know, my bed just feels warmer in the wintertime and all that sort of stuff. So what happens often is my running tends to really get cut back a lot in the winter months. So that when somebody comes and says, hey, I hear you're a runner, during the winter months I sometimes feel really bad about saying, yes, I am a runner. Because the truth is, the reality is, I'm not really running all that much. There's a disconnect between the words that I say or the identity that I kind of hold to and then the reality of my behavior as a person when it comes to running. Well, that disconnect is exactly what the book of James speaks about. James wrote to a group of Christ followers who, in his estimation, had a disconnect between the things that they were saying and the reality of their lives. His argument was that true faith in Jesus Christ is a faith that naturally flows into a life that is changed. It flows into a life whose behavior is different. And he argues that our works or our behavior or our deeds are a demonstration of what true and authentic faith is really all about. In fact, he asks very provocative questions. And that if you don't have that faith that's demonstrated in very tangible ways, James questions whether that faith really is true. Because those deeds, they are not the cause of our faith. We believe that, God's, that the, our faith is caused by God's gracious work in our lives. But those deeds are the effect of what true faith is all about. And this is what James teaches in his epistle. His broad teaching is this very thing, that if we have true faith, it will be reflected and demonstrated in our behavior. But he also moves on throughout the book. It's an incredibly concrete book. He moves throughout the book to then begin to talk about things or certain behaviors or certain deeds or works that tend to very explicitly demonstrate what true faith is all about. And what James does is he speaks in the passage that we read this this morning about this idea of favoritism and partiality and what it means in terms of our posture 
towards what we would call the marginalized in our world. You know, the truth is, this is, a, this is a very important concept for those of us that live in Baltimore City. Baltimore City, it's the only city I've ever lived in, so I can't really compare it to other cities. But Baltimore City has very clear and very definitive lines between the haves and have-nots. I tell people, it's this really complex socioeconomic experiment along these crafted lines of people who have and people who have not. What's interesting is, is, is my family lives kind of on one of those lines. On one side of the street is, a, is really a very high and affluent socioeconomic status. But when you cross that street, you go to a neighborhood that's almost entirely shrouded in poverty. Right now, where we're sitting right now is, one of the, in, is, is located in one of the most affluent and educated neighborhoods in all of Baltimore City. But just two blocks to our east is what community developers call a food desert, just two blocks away. So it's really important in our area, in our context, to realize that we have an unprecedented opportunity to demonstrate our faith in very tangible ways, especially when it comes to this idea of favoritism and partiality and caring for the marginalized in our world. See, I think James wants, to, wants us to see a few, a few things about this very issue. And the first is that the sin of favoritism or partiality that our passage talks about is completely adverse to what true faith is really all about. One of my favorite writers is uh, Flannery O'Connor. I think I probably like her because I think she was Irish. But she was an American essayist with an Irish background. She was, a, uh, she was an American essayist that uh, was Catholic and wrote a lot about uh, fictional stories that really communicate beautifully ethical truths. And one of her best short stories that I've ever read is a short story that's called Revelation. It's, it's, it's short. You can read it in just a few minutes. But it tells a story about uh, a woman in the South named uh, Mrs. Turpin. And what Mrs. Turpin does is it, it shows a scene where she has to go to the doctors to check on her husband's leg. And Miss Turpin enters this doctor's office and she sits down and there's all these other people that are waiting in this doctor's office. But you get a window into Mrs. Turpin's thoughts as she sits in this doctor's office. And what you hear is immediately as she sits down in this office, she begins to scan the crowd. And she looks at all the people around her. And what she does is she begins to size up each person in the room. She makes judgments about each person that's there thinking, well, that person should, you know, clean themselves up a little better. Or that person should control their child a little better. And what she does is she begins to rank everybody that is in the room. Interestingly enough, she is at the top of the list. And everybody else, for whatever reason, has, is inferior to her, and you get a window into her thoughts as she begins to rank this room. You know, the truth is, that's common in our culture. It's common for people and ourselves to do this. There's something that is inherent about us that tends to rank the value of people based on some sort of standard, most of which we kind of come up with ourselves. 
We see it very practically all the times in what we do. I don't know if it's the cultural error that makes us this way. I don't know if it's our own pride or our own self-righteousness that makes us this way. But for whatever reason, we all tend to do it even when we don't realize it. We tend to be really excited about appointments that we get scheduled that we feel will further ourselves or our business or our reputation. But we also get frustrated when people interrupt us that we don't seem to feel like have as much value as maybe some other people that are in our world. For a long time, I was a a, a high schooler. uh, I, I ministered to high school students. And one of the things that we commonly did with high school students is we would talk about their own high school culture. And if you've ever, if you can remember high school at all, high school does this in a very tangible way. High schoolers tend to rank other people in their schools on this social ladder, and it's this carefully crafted caste system that exists in every high school, in every community, in every culture. And one of the things that I used to say to our high schoolers is, the sad truth is, it doesn't get any better. When you become an adult, that caste system doesn't go away, that social ladder doesn't go away. We just tend to hide it better as adults, and we tend to have it a little more refined than anybody else does. But what James says is feeling this way, and thinking this way, and living this way, is actually the antithesis of true faith. You know, Flannery O'Connor in her story goes on uh, to talk more about Mrs. Turpin. Mrs. Turpin goes and she sees the doctor and then she goes home. And all of a sudden she has this revelation when she goes home. And she sees this vision. And in this vision, she sees a road that is leading into heaven. And as she looks at this road leading into heaven, she realizes that there's people on this road. And as she looks closely, she realizes that the people on this road are actually the people that she was sitting in that doctor's office with. And to her shock and to her horror, she realizes realizes that all of those people that she had deemed below her were actually ahead of her on the road to heaven. And what she does is she carefully communicates in this short story a very powerful paradigm that you see all throughout the scriptures. The scriptures talk about this upside-down, topsy-turvy nature of God's kingdom. And what it continually says all throughout the scriptures is that those that the world seems to reject so tangibly and so powerfully end up being the ones that have a unique and special place in the kingdom of God. Jesus tells a powerful story in one of his parables in Luke 14 that talks about an affluent and wealthy man who throws a great banquet. And we know that that great banquet is supposed to symbolize the beauty and the nature of the kingdom of God. So, so he throws this great banquet and he sends out all these invitations to all the, the affluent friends that he has and all the cultural elites that are in our world, all the people that have the high socioeconomic status. And to his shock, he realizes that none of them respond. No one comes to his banquet. So he sends his servants out And he tells them to go find the homeless and the crippled, find the lame and find the marginalized and bring them into the kingdom so that they can experience all of the bounty of God's kingdom. And that 
is what the scriptures tell us is the nature of God's kingdom. That those that our culture tend to reject as worthless, for some reason in God's economy, have the greatest of value. James also wants us to see that a byproduct of our tendency to play favorites and our tendency to be partial is a, is a regular neglect of the poor and the oppressed in our culture. You know, Baltimore has its fair share of poverty and oppression. You don't have to drive long in the city really to find it. We are in some ways confronted with it every single day. We have a hard time explaining what it means to our kids because it's so uh, in our face all of the time. You know, years ago there was um, a story uh, that happened in New York. And I don't know if you saw this on the news, but uh, in New York there was a story about a homeless man that was obviously very ill who died on a subway platform uh, in, in New York City. And what was interesting is because it was on a subway platform, because it was in a public place, they had a camera and they actually got to see that as this man was dying, hundreds of people just walked by and didn't do a single thing about it. And he died right there on the subway platform. And it made all the the kind of news channels and, and the early morning kind of talk show circuit as to why would no one stop and really help this man? And all the the sociologists came on and they interviewed, why did so many people not stop? And he came up with three big reasons. One is that we just become so desensitized to the poor and the marginalized in our culture. We see them all the time. They're there all the time that we don't even think about it. We become so desensitized about it. The second thing he said was this thing called the bystander effect. When you walk by and you actually do notice it, but you think, oh, I'm busy, somebody else will do it. Somebody else will take care of it. And the third thing they said is this idea of this diffusion of responsibility, where we look at a person and we say, well, that's sad, but it's really just not my responsibility to do that. Whatever it might be, James doesn't let us get away with any of the excuses. He says to do nothing is actually the antithesis of what true faith is all about. Instead, what he teaches is that true faith will naturally spend itself on behalf of the poor and oppressed in our world. He says this in in chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There's this really powerful passage in Isaiah 58. And uh, the, the people of Israel want God to do something for them. So they figure, we're going to do all the things that, that we know we ought to do in order for God to respond and to do the thing that we want Him to do. So they engage in, in all the fasts and all the spiritual exercises. They go and they, they worship regularly and they do all the things that they know they're supposed to do to get God to do something, but God's not responding. He's silent, and the people are getting upset. They're, they're following the formula. They're doing what they're supposed to do, but, but God's not holding up his end of the bargain. He's not responding. And then God comes to them and says something very powerfully. He says, I know you think what you're doing is true worship, but what true worship really is is spending yourselves 
on behalf of the poor and oppressed. You're do, you're, you've got the worship box checked off. You've got the, the scripture reading checked off, the prayers, the fasting. You've got all that taken care of. But really true worship, the fast that I really desire is to give oneself away to the poor and oppressed. You know, when you think about spiritual life and spiritual practices as believers, you think of things like Bible studies, you think of things like quiet times and Bible reading plans and prayer journals and all that sort of stuff. And sometimes in our Christian walk, we can become so consumed with some of these exercises, some of these kind of internal private exercises of the faith that we end up not having time for anything else whatsoever. We fill our schedule with these things and we define those things as true religion and true faith. And really they are a part of it. But what James says is it's not enough. James says true faith is manifested in care for the marginalized. And it has just as much value for our faith as all those other spiritual practices and exercises that we could talk about. Someone once wrote this about the scriptures. He said, in the Christian scriptures, one out of every ten lines deals directly with the physically poor and the call from God for us to respond to them. In the Gospel of Luke, that becomes every sixth line. And in the Epistle of James, that commission is there in one form or another every fifth line. It makes us have to wonder, it makes us have to pause and reflect. Have we lost our cultural influence in the world? Has the church lost its cultural influence in the world for the very fact that we no longer care for the poor and oppressed tangibly as part of our faith? We've only relegated our faith to these private exercises that happen behind closed doors. Now, whenever we talk about this, it's very easy to make the, the issue very simple and black and white. When often the issue of caring for the poor and oppressed are very, are, are, is very complex. It's very difficult and very challenging. And in some ways, we all have to sort through personally what that means for us as individuals. But I think one thing that we have to understand very broadly is that what care for the poor and the marginalized really means is restoring dignity to people that don't have it. And I thought about this recently when I read a story in the book. If, if you know, if you've been in Baltimore for, for any length of time, you know that everybody has a story about a time when they met Johnny Unitas. All right? If you're not from Baltimore and you don't know who Johnny Unitas is, you've got to find out. Johnny Unitas was a, a quarterback for the Baltimore Colts, and uh, in, very, in a very real way was probably one of the, is and was one of the city's biggest heroes, right? If you're looking for heroes of Baltimore, look no further than Johnny Unitas. And because of that, anybody that's lived in Baltimore for any substantial length of time has some sort of story about when they saw or interacted with Johnny Unitas, and that becomes their claim to fame. Here's mine. When I was a teenager... When I was a teenager, I worked at a deli for about seven or eight years. And Johnny Unitas lived in the neighborhood where I worked at this deli. And at once a week at 9.30 at night, always at 9.30 at night, Johnny Unitas would come in and would buy milk from me. So there's my claim to fame. I sold gallons of milk to Johnny Unitas, and I'm famous because of it. But one of the, most, one of the best stories I ever heard about Johnny Unitas was a story 
that actually happened right before he died. And uh, Johnny Unitas had been invited to some sort of um, event, I think it was probably in his honor, at the Camden Club in the warehouse downtown right by the stadiums. But he decided for whatever reason to park on the other side of Russell Street. So he knew he had to cross Russell Street in order to get through the stadiums and get to the warehouse to this event that he had to go to. And uh, the story says that he, that he walked to uh, the corner and was waiting for the light to change. But he noticed that even though the light was green, the cars were stopping to let him get by. Because everybody had noticed that the man that was waiting to cross the street was the famous Johnny Unitas. So even though they could drive, every car stopped in order to let Unitas walk by. And as he walked by, people were rolling down their windows and they were cheering for Johnny Unitas and they were screaming for him. And some people were getting out of their cars, all stopping traffic on Russell Street, which if you've ever been on is a pretty busy street. Well, as the story goes, Johnny Unitas crosses the, the street and he's there with a friend of his. And as soon as he crosses the street, a homeless man approaches the two of them in order to ask for some money. And uh, as soon as he walks up to the two people, he, he all of a sudden realized that, that this man that he'd just come to beg money from is Johnny Unitas himself. So what he does is he begins to kind of try to straighten up his clothes and uh, try to make himself look a little more presentable because he's right here in front of Johnny Unitas. And, and Johnny Unitas immediately stops him and interrupts him and shakes his hand warmly. And his friend is there and is kind of pulling out his wallet and, you know, beginning to count through what spare change he had to give the guy 10 bucks. But Johnny just starts talking to the guy. And for 15 minutes, they sit there and they talk about life and they talk about football. And this man is so elated that Johnny Unitas had the opportunity, he had the opportunity to talk to Johnny Unitas, that he ends up walking away without ever taking the money whatsoever. Why? Because he just had a discussion with a living legend. Because of that, his dignity as a person for about 15 minutes had been restored. Johnny Unitas' friend, after the conversation, looked at him and he said, that was really nice of you to talk to that man. And Johnny Unitas muttered back to him, maybe that's why God put me on this earth, to make people happy. You know what the reality is that James is telling us? He's telling us that God has put his people on this earth to be agents of his grace and his mercy to those in need and to in the process and to in the process restore dignity to those people who have lost theirs. You know the truth is you kind of hear this the story like this and you, and you read in James about about the importance of caring for the poor and oppressed and Often we kind of go out and have this renewed commitment to care for the poor and oppressed and, and uh, we do this and we do that and whatever exercise we feel God might be calling us to do. But often the motivation for it begins to kind of fall away. It doesn't last very much. So it makes us wonder, is there any sort of true and lasting motivation to be able to follow God's people in caring for the poor and oppressed? And I think James gives us the answer because James tells us that God himself became poor and oppressed so that you, can, you and I could have our dignity restored and we could be given the riches of heaven. One of the, thing the, one of the things the Bible is really clear about, if you read it, is the Bible is very clear about that when it comes to spiritual, spiritual, spiritually 
uh, material possessions we have, when it comes to our own spiritual life, we are bankrupt. We stand before God in spiritual poverty. We have no spiritual resources in which to earn God's favor. We have no way of getting back to him, and we stand before him estranged because of our spiritual poverty. But because of that, he set aside the bliss and the joys of heaven, the wealth and the wonder of heaven, to be born as a poor person, to have his dignity taken away from him, to have, his, to have the shame of this world poured upon him, to be crucified naked as a common criminal. He bore the very shame that you and I deserved, and he did it so that you and I, despite our own spiritual poverty, he did it so that you and I can experience the wealth and the bliss of heaven. And in some ways, our tangible care for the poor and oppressed in our midst is a tangible picture to the world of what Christ has done for us in the midst of our poverty. But we first have to recognize that spiritual poverty. I think many of us really struggle with kind of half-hearted emotions because we, don't, we aren't really in, ter- in, in, in touch with just how broke and how poor we are before God spiritually. One pastor called it, instead of being poor in spirit, we're really very middle class in spirit. But when we come to that real sense of our poverty before God, it is at that moment that God meets us with all the wealth and the privilege and the blessing of what it means to be in a relationship with him. Only made possible because Christ himself became poor and oppressed and marginalized on our behalf. You know, I have to confess, when I was in college, I went to a school that, um, which many schools do now, but I went to a school that required service, okay? So as a freshman you had to give about an hour or two hours uh, every week to serve in some capacity in the community. And uh, I was assigned to work at a rescue mission uh, when I was in college my freshman year. I was just assigned it. I didn't have the opportunity. And I have to confess, I hated it. I hated every single moment about it. I could not wait for it to be done. I could not wait to get back to my dorm. I could not wait to be done serving these kind of grimy, needy sort of kids in our community. And I don't know why that was, but for whatever reason, maybe I was self-absorbed, maybe I was too caught up in myself or whatever it was, but for whatever reason it was, I hated it. And because of that, I wanted to put hands over my ears to the cry of the poor and oppressed in our culture. The truth is, we all fall into that. This is what James talks about. We all fall into, at times, closing our ears to the poor and oppressed, putting blinders around us that ignore all the things that are around us. But the truth is, at some point, God opened my eyes, and he opened my eyes to see that I'm actually no better than those kids I serve. The only difference is, my poverty is different. They may be materially broke. They may be materially poor. They may materially have nothing. But the truth is, when I look into my soul, I know that I'm spiritually broke. That I spiritually have nothing at all of value before God. 
But in those moments when we come to that realization, God opens our eyes to the very things that he has done for us. And he pours the riches of the kingdom into our hearts. And he calls us to be a tangible expression of that in our world. Jesus met me in my poverty, and he meets you and I with the gospel in all of our poverty. And this becomes the only real, true, lasting motivation for caring for the poor and oppressed in our midst, recognizing our own spiritual poverty, recognizing what Christ has done, and then going forth as a tangible expression of that for caring for the poor and oppressed in our midst. You want to know whether you have true faith? You want to know what true faith really looks like? What is the evidence of true faith? What is the demonstration of true faith in our world? And that is caring for the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized that are all around us.